Welcome to the Black Agenda Podcast. I'm your co-host, Devin Dito, along with my co-host, Adrian Guest. We are back at it again, our very last, our very last weekly roundup of 2021. It is weekly roundup number 25. Today is December 11th, 2021, and we have a ton of news to get to. We are sad. It's our very last weekly roundup, but as always, we love it and we're excited to bring you the news for today. So let's jump right into it. Starting at the top, our very first story is going to be about actor uh, Jesse Smollett. You may remember a few years ago, he made the news internationally for the wrong reason. But that has his story has sort of come to a, a conclusion here. So after about a week-long trial, actor and musician Jesse Smollett was found guilty by a Cook County jury in Chicago after being accused of staging a hate crime in 2019. And so, like I said, he made the news off of the entirely wrong reason. Smollett told police in January of 2019 that he was a victim of a racist and homophobic attack. However, Chicago police did do an investigation and they actually alleged that Jesse Smollett orchestrated and lied about the entire hate crime. And this all led to a legal and media frenzy, like I said, that made international news. And now Smollett actually went on trial and had been charged with uh, six felony counts of disorderly conduct for making false reports. And he was found guilty on five of those six charges. Now, whether he actually sees prison is a different question. Some of these felonies do carry penalties of one to three years in prison, but they also could come with just probation. So Adrian, you know, I remember this story when it first came out. And I remember when I heard the details, I was like, that doesn't sound quite true. But he was getting all the backing and all the love and support from a ton of people, including Vice President Kamala Harris, who all jumped in, you know, to his aid. But, you know, I, I'm not I don't feel bad for him. Like he 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 kept up the hoax until the very end. He got on 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 the stand and said, no, these guys, they, they came after me and they attacked me and they tried to get money. from. It was just a wild story. And I'm glad it's finally over. But it's just hugely embarrassing for him. Yeah, I agree, Devin. It's one of those situations where you're just like, wow, you know, why would you, <laughs> you know, fake such an attack where we're already um, in a racially torn society right now? Don't know why you would, you know, have that motivation. But uh, to take you to another story, interesting uh, story, actually. Former Tennessee teacher Matthew Hahn spent 16 years in the Sullivan County school system teaching contemporary issues. But his remarks about white privilege, that it being a fact during a discussion about police shootings, set off a chain of events that ultimately led to his dismissal. This is according to the Washington Post. During a lesson in August 2020, Hahn compared the incidents of Jacob Blake and Kyle Rittenhouse, reportedly asking students, how is this not a definition of white privilege? Hahn apologized after a parent complained. Then, after a Trump-supporting mob stormed the U.S. Capitol on January 6th, Hahn assigned Tanahisi Coates' essay, The First White President, to students, which argues that white racism was a driving force for former President Donald Trump, which we know, that to be true. Um, <laughs> the final straw came in April when Derek Chauvin was convicted of manslaughter and murder in the killing of George Floyd, and students wanted to discuss the verdict. In response to a student asking if it would have been an example of white privilege if Chauvin Hadn't been ter- hadn't been found guilty. Han pulled up Kayla Janae Lacey's poetry performance, "White Privilege," on YouTube. So, Devin, you know, obviously a lot, you know, to digest here, but it's true. I mean, it's you know, I, white privilege is a fact. I, I don't know if it's one of those situations to where um, you have, you know, obviously there's got to be a better way to teach it in our schools, uh, in our school systems. And right now we don't really have a curriculum that's, you know, geared towards doing that. So, I mean, I can understand why some people can get upset because it's just like if we wanted to, you know, teach, you know, critical race theory and, you know, different things of that nature. Um, so I, I get the whole argument, but I mean, he is talking about facts. So, I mean, it's like maybe there's just a better way to present those facts. Right. Yeah, I think, you know, robust discussion is a better way of trying to fight some of these things. I don't think just, you know, trying to make it seem as though there is only one way to teach it or one perspective when you're talking about white privilege or one point of view. I think that was the main problem here. I don't disagree with, you know, everything that he was saying. It did seem like 
who was definitely pushing a certain viewpoint and, and wasn't really interested in hearing the, you know, different points of view from the students, whether you agree with them or not, you still have to have a, a discussion. Like we talked about with the misinformation, you have to hear people out, you have to understand their point of view, and then that's when you start to slowly try to change their minds. You're not going to change it overnight. You're not going to change it in one lesson, you know, at school. And so while he may have good intentions, I think the way he was going about it and executing it was probably, you know, the wrong way and not the way in which you're going to change anyone's minds um, by doing that and by, you know, drowning out, you know, opposing viewpoints. That's not what we want to do when we're trying to have these conversations because it really just doesn't help at the end of the day. Like, like you say, he's talking about facts. He could be correct. But if you go about it the wrong way, you're just going to turn off more people to the points of view that you're actually trying to to push. <laughs> so it yeah. actually works against you. I mean, in the world of academia, it's a, like you said, it's about having open uh, conversations, thorough research. Uh, and you've got to also bridge in you know gaps or bridge in views from everybody so that it fills those gaps. Just because if we are going to start wanting to teach these culturally um, uh, hot topics, you know, white people are going to say that we've got to also talk about this or this or that or whatever. And I mean, I guess it's, it's fair. I mean, you know, I think the only way we're ever going to win this narrative is if we try to figure out a way to um, kind of make a compromise. Because I mean, I think we need to make sure that critical race theory and white privilege and all those things are taught. But just like, um, uh, Dr. Turner said in one of our uh, interviews, black people have to acknowledge that some of the lifestyle choices we do don't mm-hmm. you know, promote the best thing. So it's about you know making sure that everybody's viewpoints are kind of uh, being advocated there. Not to mention you know that black people need to change that, but just to mention how culture can influence the trajectory of success within a, a group of people. So different ways to do it. Yeah. No, and I, I think you have to do that because the problems are so complex and we're going to get to another discussion topic where they're blaming one thing, but it's actually a multitude of factors that go into why uh, this situation arises. But before we get to that next discussion, we did want to make sure we mentioned that uh, CNN primetime anchor Chris, Chris Cuomo has actually officially been fired by CNN now after new information came to light during a review of how he helped his former bro- his brother, not his former brother, but his brother and former New York governor, Andrew Cuomo, respond to sexual harassment allegations. The news, ne- the news network has retained a law firm and is going to proceed with an investigation. And we now know it has come to light that uh, CNN anchor Chris Cuomo was actually under investigation for an allegation of sexual misconduct that contributed to his firing from CNN. So, um, I know, Asian. We, we, you know, on our era of misinformation episode, we pointed out CNN for being one of those sources where they're not really doing a lot of journalistic reporting over there, as far as these opinion shows. And so, Chris Cuomo was one of them. Although, looks like he was doing a whole bunch of other things, helping his brother, and he also looks like he has a sexual misconduct case that is coming his way. So, just really a mess, honestly, over at CNN. But. <laughs> I'll you digress know, I was that. reading another article about Don Lemon. I think he's in hot water. Uh, yes, the so, Jesse Smollett case. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, CNN might be dropping another uh, anchor, <laughs> depending on how that goes. That's just, you know, which I'm not that much of a Don Lemon fan. Uh, I don't even watch CNN anymore, but that's neither here nor there. Um, to go to another story, this is out of my, uh, one of my former cities that I lived in, uh, Los Angeles. Their police department or police department detective is warning people not to come to the city as incidents of smash and grab and follow home robberies have risen in, in, in the area recently. In appearance on Fox News Monday, McBride told anchors that he's telling people don't visit because we don't think we can keep you safe right now. Comparing Los Angeles to the movie The Purge, but instead of 24 hours to commit your crimes, they have 365 days. Uh, that's that's a pretty tough comparison there. Uh, McGrath, uh, McBride blamed the crime surge on things like Prop 47, which char- which changed sentencing guidelines, as well as the state's zero bail policy. Many policing changes were made as a response to the COVID-19 pandemic, including the zero bail policy and the elimination of cash bail for low-level nonviolent felonies and misdemeanors. On Wednesday, L.A. City Councilman Joe Boscano introduced a resolution to support the reinstitution of cash bails in L.A. County, 
The LAPD report homicides have gone up by 50% since 2019 and aggravated assaults have gone up about 16%. So, Mm. you know, Devin, there was so much to come out of, you know, the George Floyd movement, COVID-19, social justice that made our police uh, departments, you know, central focus. And, 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 And rightfully so, there are certain things that we need to change and reform within our police systems and make sure they're equitable. But when you start just completely defunding them and cutting certain things, when you start having these different resolutions, you don't really know how they're going to work out. Um, you have a lot of situations. Cause I mean, I don't think LA is the only major city that we're seeing a lot of these crime surges in right now. Um, and like I said, there was so much negative light put on police departments that I feel like we've kind of crippled them a little too much. Right. I think there is such thing as like overcorrection, you know, like during the pandemic, they were worried about jail populations. And so that's why the zero bail policy even came into effect because they were trying to reduce the, you know, the the prison population. So you didn't have this enormous spread of, of COVID, even though we still had that in a lot of our prisons. But, you know, again, I think, you know, Proposition 47 and, and laying the blame there, there's probably some to be taken by Prop 47 and the zero bail policy, but also from the fact that a lot of police departments, and I'm pretty sure LAPD is the same, just have a shortage of just officers, period. Like people know that not only do is there a shortage of officers, then you know if you do get arrested and you don't have to pay bail right now, so you just go in and they let you out. And just to give people a little caveat of how it's really working, those smash and grab robberies, they arrested 14 people for those. All 14 of them were allowed to get get charged and arrested and then were released because there is no cash bail right now. So that lets you know how the system is working. That doesn't mean that they're going to go out, go out and recommit a crime. And at least right now, I haven't I didn't read anything that says we're getting a lot of people who've been previously arrested on something, released on bail and then committed another crime. I don't know if that's the connection, but I guess he's saying because there is no no bail. People are just like, oh, I can just go out here and do what I want, which is not necessarily true. They need to be prosecuted and, and you know, found guilty on whatever charges they were brought up on. But like you say, after last year, there definitely was a step back that happened from, you know, police departments and not being so heavy handed. And maybe it w- there was sort of an overcorrection and people sense that they already are financially in, in dire straits. And so, they saw that the police are not as visible as they once were. And then af- after that, they're not going to prosecute you maybe because of certain crimes. So, yeah, I mean, there's there's a balance when you talk about reforming the police and maybe we're tiptoeing in line there. Yeah, I agree. I, I think, um, you know, obviously there needs to be some correction, but, you know, we need to make sure that we still have community policing. Uh, and also you got to tackle these issues of why people are doing crime. Um, a lot of that, you know, is attributed to you know lack of education, lack of opportunity, lack of wages, uh, insecurity, those sorts of things. So uh, it's definitely going to be a conversation that we'll have to continue to have. Absolutely, and and moving on as far as that conversation that we need to have, it's going to take a lot of you know allies helping us out, and that's just a, a segue, listeners, for our next discussion, which is about the word of the year according to Dictionary dot com, which is allyship. So allyship, which is an an old noun, really, has kind of been made new now because of what's happened over the last couple of years. And Dictionary.com made it the word of the year. So the site actually offers two definitions for the word allyship, one one in which is the role of a person who advocates for inclusion of a marginalized uh, or politicized group in solidarity, but not as a member. And then the more traditional definition of allyship means persons, groups, or nations associating and cooperating with one another for a common cause or purpose. And so, like I said, after the summer of 2020 and the death of George Floyd, um, white allies and the word allyship have been really uh, proliferating throughout the country as racial justice demonstrations spread. And um, among the examples of how to use the word in a sentence, which is cited by Merriam-Webster, they use this sentence, which is, poor allyship is speaking over marginalized people by taking credit and receiving recognition for arguments that the unprivileged have been making for their entire lives. So 
I really like that, you know, that citation or not citation, but that use of it in a, in a sentence, I guess, Adrian. Um, I think it's representative of, of where we are. There's a balance, again, with everything. We want more white allies to speak out about the injustices that we see, but we don't want them to try to step ahead of us and take credit for some of the things that we have been pushing for for years. I think, you know, it, it works as word of the year, definitely for this year. Yeah, I think um, the article talks about some of the other major um, dictionaries who kind of got vaxxed or vaccine, uh, which I could see that. But uh, in in lieu of what we have seen over you know the past two years, even um, there's definitely been a lot of allyship um, where you saw um, the George Floyd protest, multiracial, multigenerational. So I, I definitely I, I could get behind it. Um, I don't think it'll ever be. Um, a part of normal conversation, and I don't think people um, will probably use it in a sentence like Merriam-Webster, but <laughs> I do like what they tried to do there. But uh, before we let you go, we wanted to do, give you a little feel-good story as if Ally Ship isn't enough feel-good. Online retailer, uh, rather online retail giant Amazon is launching a new program to help advance the careers of real estate developers of color and increase diverse voices in the industry. Free for participants, the pilot program is set to feature training, mentorship, and opportunities to increase access to capital, which can hold back developers of cover color given the often steep upfront pre-development expenses. The program also aims to lower the barriers these developers can face when bidding for affordable housing developments. Amazon has committed more than $21 million to launch the program in its three communities, Seattle, Washington, Arlington, Virginia, and Nashville, Tennessee. So, Thanks, Amazon, for helping people of color. Um, maybe more uh, people will join the Alley Ship movement and help people of color as well. But until then, listeners, we're going to give you a break, and then we'll see you on the other side. So stick with us. We'll be right back. Thank you for listening to the Black Agenda Podcast. We appreciate your support, and we ask that you like, share, and follow us on social media. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Black Agenda Pod. That's at Black Agenda Pod. Let's get back to the show. All right, listeners, welcome back. Let's get into our second segment here. Now, we kind of talked a little bit about this in our infrastructure episode about how communities of color were displaced with building the uh, interstate highway system. But this was an interesting story talking about the University of Georgia here. Former homeowners in Lennontown are demanding community leaders pay after destroying their neighborhoods and replacing it with the University of Georgia. Per NBC News, Lennontown was once a black neighborhood consisting of plumbers, electricians, construction workers, and beauticians. During the 1960s, the beloved memory filled town was replaced with the University of Georgia, according to Athens Clark County documents. Although the university is playing hard to get, the county has agreed to acknowledge the harm done to the community. It will also work with the university to get a wall recognition memorial and a center on slavery, Jim Crow, and the future of black communities in Athens. And the hard to get thing that they're talking about in there, uh, they wanted to get the university to rename a residence hall after Town, but the university said no. So that's what they were talking about with the hard to get, which is crazy. I mean, it's, you know, if documents show that these people were displaced to build the university, then, I mean, there should be some sort of recognition because it's like, People don't realize, you know, what that does to a people. Um, but if you just look at the research and historical data that we have from uh, even, you know, Black Wall Street and different things of that nature, when you totally rip up a community and tell them that, you know, all the business and commerce that they built, they've got to leave and go somewhere else, that's generational wealth that you're stripping away from uh, from them and their future generations. So um, I definitely think this community deserves some stuff um, and, you know, Hopefully the university um, has some allyship and, and stop playing hard to get. There we go. Um, no, I, I think you're exactly right. I agree. And just more examples of some of those things that we talk about, you know, whether it be infrastructure, highways and and urban renewal and things like that, building a university. Um, there are so many ways in which we have been kind of stripped out and and, you know, done wrong when it comes to things like this. And they're just asking for an acknowledgement. Of course, they would probably love payment for, you know, the businesses that they've lost, but that probably ain't happening. But an acknowledgement, I feel like, is the least that the university 
um, could do. But we'll update you on that and whether the University of Georgia actually comes to the table in a serious way. But we'll move on to our next story here. We're going to go to the FBI. They are talking about, so this is from the GRIO. Uh, the GRIO is, is reporting that the FBI uh, launched the National Use of Force Data Collection Program in 2019 to provide reliable statistics on law, enfor- on law enforcement use of force incidents. And despite a presidential order, only 27% of police departments have supplied the data for the second year in a row. Oops, sorry. Nationwide, the majority of law enforcement agencies still close records or make them hard to obtain. They claim they are per- they are personnel matters, privacy violations, or ongoing investigations that could be compromised. They are backed by strong law enforcement unions and the law enforcement bills of rights that protect the privacy rights of officers over the public's right to know. And so the report says that the FBI data collection will be discontinued by the end of 2022 if more police departments don't participate. So, yeah, Adrian, you know, we talked about this and the need for more, just more information and more data about what's going on with our law enforcement agencies. What are they doing in the field? And it just, you know, it discourages you a little bit that the message still hasn't really been received when we're talking about the need to repair the relationship between the community and the police. And part of that, part of the way you can do that is building transparency and letting people know what actually is happening. And so we don't have great data. We don't have a national database of what's, you know, what's happening with our police. And so it's just, you know, it's discouraging to see that that's still a problem. And we're just talking about reporting information. We're not talking about officers' names and numbers and things like that. We just want to know who who was involved in these use of force incidents. And we can't simply get that information, which is going to make it that much more difficult to get some real work done. Yeah, Devin. And, you know, that's one reason why I wanted to have this uh, story in, in this segment to kind of contrast the other policing story we had in the first segment. Just to say that, you know, the the way to get more resources for police departments is through having a better focus of community policing, transparency, doing those things to, to heal the relationship that, you know, communities have suffered under with, you know, under the hands of police. I mean, it's I think once they heal the relationship, then we can get to a conversation of, you know, what do you need to, to have a successful police department? But we're not there just yet. Um, another conversation that was really interesting, um, kind of talking about affirmative action here. Students for Fair Admissions, or F or SFA, founded by anti-affirmative action activist Edwin Bloom, is appealing two lower court decisions that favored Harvard's practice of considering a student's race as a factor in admissions, a practice that the Supreme Court in 2003 said is constitutional. The Biden administration backed Harvard's university's race-conscious admissions process in a brief filed Wednesday to the Supreme Court, urging the justices to reject the appeal from an organization that wants to end the use of affirmative action in the school's admission process. Harvard spokesperson Rachel Dane said, The United States rightly affirms that all universities, including Harvard, should have the freedom and flexibility to consider race as, as one factor among many, to create the diverse campus communities essential to their educational missions and to the success of their students in the workplace and the world. I agree. I think, you know, I think when you're an organization like Harvard and you realize that you're kind of, you know, in a, in a world of maybe right, white privilege, um, you know, considering race is displaying good allyship, you know, whenever you, you know, consider that as a part of your missions, because obviously, and I get how, you know, maybe Asian Americans could say that, well, we're losing out on opportunities to go to Harvard because you all would rather consider the race and let someone who's black or Latino in. And I mean, that's a, I guess it's a fair argument. I mean, if I were Asian, I would probably be in support of what FSA is doing, but I'm black and I'm, um, and I'm not. Um, and I mean, that's bias, obviously, but uh, I will admit to my bias in that in that regard. But I think you know, more than anything, Devin, it's fine for organizations to consider race as a part of, you know, what they're trying to build. Whenever everyone's trying to build diverse communities, um, obviously, just like we said in the other segment about police correction, there might be too much, you know, where you do discriminate against Asian Americans who actually are very competent and capable of making it into Harvard. 
Um, so maybe there's just uh, a Joe Manchin middle ground that we've got to get to. <laughs> I don't know about that. No, I'm just playing. Um, <laughs> I think, you know, we the, the thing about this topic is that we covered this last year. We did an episode on affirmative action, and we had someone who literally was in who, whose job it was to do this very thing, which is admissions at a university. And she, you know, described it as like you said toward there at the end of like they're not just considering only race. And when they're talking about the students and thinking about <clears throat> the students who they admit to the school, they're not. You can't just admit all. Asian students. You like you say, you want to have a diverse student population so that ideas are shared and you get experiences with people who don't necessarily look like you. And part of the thing that's missing from these conversations about affirmative action and using race in admissions is that when you look at, say, uh, the Harvard University, the share of Asian of Asian students has grown over years. Like it has actually grown while and I I'm pretty sure this is correct from our episode. The share of black students has not really grown that much while the share of Asian students has grown a lot over the past year. So you've seen an acknowledgement by the, these universities that says we're seeing a lot of high achieving Asian students. We're going to grow the share of our population that represents them. Now, is it going to be completely, you know, majority Asian American? No, it's not because diversity still matters when you're talking about your student population. So I, I don't believe that <clears throat> these these Asian-American students are having their spots taken by this large share of Black students that are all of a sudden getting into Ivy League schools because you don't see that. You're not seeing the Black share of students who, who make up the student population at these universities just grow exponentially. So while I understand their frustration, race is only one part of the admissions, you know, process process and it's not the only thing that matters and we just have to make sure we keep it in mind i like you i agree it should be considered along with a bunch of other factors because you want to make sure you do have a diverse student population because we know that that there is good there are good things that come from having a diverse popula- student population and having those experiences with people who don't necessarily look like you and giving students who come from disadvantaged backgrounds the opportunity to go to a Harvard or a Stanford or an Ivy League school or something, we have to keep that in mind, too, because of the country that we live in. So it's not as easy to just say, throw race out of the admissions process. It's unfair. And, not, <laughs> and I guess also to mention the fact that, you know, some of, the, uh, some of these kids who are going to like these very prestigious schools, um, when they get to school, that's like the first time they're actually around diversity. You know, a lot of them grow up in all white or all Asian or all black or all Latino communities or whatever. And everybody knows that college is a time for you to actually learn about, you know, diversity. Cause that's the first time for a lot of people that you're really surrounded by so many different people, mm-hmm. unless you're like, you know, you're in a New York city or a Los Angeles or something like that. But it's really important what these schools are doing just to try to create a diverse community because we know that when people are intolerant of you know other people, uh, it really uh, affects the progress that we have in our country. And one of the best ways to get that or get through that is by surrounding yourself with other people who come from different walks of life than you do. So uh, glad that they're doing it. Absolutely. And we'll move to our next story here just to give you a little bit of news about Donald Trump. We have not talked about him very much this season. That's on purpose uh, because he's no longer important. But (laughs) we did want to point this out. He does have at least a new social media company and its its special purpose acquisition company partner says the partner has agreements for a billion dollars in capital from institutional investors. And so Trump hopes to have businesses to eventually compete with Twitter, Facebook, Netflix, Disney Plus, CNN, iHeartRadio, and even Google Cloud and Amazon Web Services. So that is Trump. That's his plan to take over the, the media ecosystem. Whether he's is successful in that, we do not know. But we just wanted to make sure we point that out, um, that the former president is trying to get into the media business. And, you know, I think a lot of people think that Donald Trump is gone, but when you can, you know, raise a billion dollars uh, from institutional investors, and they haven't disclosed who those investors are, but 
that's what the B. I mean, that's that's a good bit of money to um, start a, a company like a Twitter or Facebook or something like that. Uh, and I mean, I don't as much as I would like for Trump to just go away into the quiet night or whatever the, the you know the phrase or quote is. I don't think he is. I I, I really think um, we're going to. Uh, I know we have ignored him a lot, you know, this season, but I you know next year with midterms. You know that you know he's going to be um, campaigning. He's going to be doing everything and anything he can to um, get his face and name out there again. So uh, hopefully he goes away. But with a billion dollars, plus he's going to be making money as the chair of these companies. Uh, I don't think he's going away. But we'll see. Definitely yes. We we have ignored Trump to you know much of our appreciation. At least we talked about him a lot last year. But we'll move on to our next story here. We're going to go up to Capitol Hill, where they still have not passed the Build Back Better plan, which, of course, is President Joe Biden's social kind of economic change bill. Supposed to be infrastructure, but it's really not. It's a bunch of uh, different things in it. But the Senate uh, has uh, not passed it. And the House of Representatives is um, has passed it. But the Senate is we're still waiting on it. Again, Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema are kind of standing in the way. And it's a $2 trillion bill that includes, among other things, the extension of the child tax credit that has helped a lot of families, including a lot of black families, be able to make it by. And so given the reality that for millions of Americans um, have have benefited from this tax credit with it being fully refundable, the question is, you know, what impact will it have on the child poverty rate that the Biden administration has, has touted as being slashed in half? Thanks to the advanced payments of the child tax credit. So if these payments go away, what does that mean for families and that child poverty rate? So the Urban Institute projects that 13% of Americans uh, have family income below the supplemental poverty measure. Uh, The projected percentages of Black people in poverty is at 18.1%. And for Hispanic people in poverty, it's at 21.9%. And that's about as twice as high for white people, which is 9.6%. So, you know, Adrian, this is definitely, you know, a concern. I think a lot of families got sort of a lifeline with these advanced payments. You get them from, um, it was what, July up until December. And, you know, expanded child tax credit, advanced payments of the child tax credit was a huge boon for a lot of people. But that's going to expire after this year. So it is kind of like, you know, families are on the edge kind of wondering, you know, okay, yes, tax time is coming next year. They're going to get a fairly large refund. But what happens once you get to May, June, July, and those funds run out and those child tax payments aren't there, do we go back to where we were, say, 2020, 2019, where the child poverty rate essentially just goes back to where it was? I think that's something that we all should be concerned about. Yeah. You know, I'm going to say something that might be a little controversial, but I think, you know, it's fine that we're doing this, but like 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 Biden's plan says, build back better. We need to start figuring out how we can rebuild some of these communities and, and, and get them to where they don't need, you know, extra and, you know, I wouldn't say handouts, but extra intervention from the government. I mean, that's I'm I'm getting my MBA right now. I'm working on a lot of different you know things, and I'm hoping to you know do a firm. And that's one of the things that we've been really trying to talk about within my project. And it's just like you know, I, I get how we do need to heal families by giving them payments, but the Biden administration needs to also consider you know job training program, which maybe that's a part of the Build Back Better. I I, I don't remember how they're planning to spend all those trillions of dollars, but. Um, you know, I, I just definitely think we got to start trying to figure out some other ways, because if our if our thing is going to be that we need to have UBI or some child tax credit or some sort of payments to Americans. And I'm not saying that we don't uh, need that. But what I'm saying is the fact that you're always going to have people in the Democratic Party and in the Republican Party, especially who are not going to be in favor of just giving a bunch of money to people versus making sure that these people, you know, you know, have jobs and, you know, know about investments and savings and different things like that. Obviously, the latter takes a lot more time to build into a community to teach them those sorts of things and pick them up. And it's much easier 
uh, which is why Democrats are so behind it. It's, it's easy just to say, hey, America, we gave you all a lot of money. You need to vote for us. It's easy to do that. It's much harder to say, America, you know, it's going to be uh, a tough time, but we're going to get you there and we're going to make sure that you don't need us as much. You know, we're going to make sure that, you know, we do our jobs right so that you can have businesses, you can have degrees, um, you can have jobs, you can have health care. Um, there are ways around this to make sure that, you know, we're not always in this constant battle about should the government give people money? Yes, you know, the government does need to do that. But there's another element to it to make sure that as you're giving people stuff, you're also teaching them and training them so that there's less intervention down the road. No, I mean, <clears throat> that's a great point. I, I understand that point of view. And to an extent, I believe, you know, the Democrats did try. Remember, they had the, the two years free college, um, two years free college, did not make it into the Build Back Better plan. Right. So there were some things they did try to do to, you know, tackle it from both angles. We're going to give you advanced payments, but also mm-hmm. pay for you to go to school for two years, which is a huge deal. Yeah. And one way that's proven to be able to increase the skill of a community and allow people to get a, you know more advanced degrees and things like that. But again, it takes work on both sides to acknowledge that there's a problem. And I think right now one group says there isn't a problem. And it's just the fault of the community. And the other group says, well, there is a problem. We need to be very involved with it. I mean, giving people checks and, and different things like that. So, <clears throat> you know, it's it's frustrating that we're getting half solutions to some of these problems. Like we appreciate the checks and it's helping fix child poverty. But like with anything, once you cut it off, what is left over? These families haven't really been changed. They don't have a degree or more job skills, or something they can fall back on. So like you say, it's like, we appreciate the help now, but we really do need these long-term solutions, which Build Back Better may will help us get there. It's not perfect. There are other things we need to be doing, but you know, I appreciate the effort, at least from the Biden team, to try. I hope it gets across the finish line to get us, you know, move the, it at least advances the football. That's that's all I'll say. It advances the football. <laughs> and I'll definitely give that to him, even versus his former um um well, I don't even know what you would say, versus Obama. Yeah. Um Joe Biden is doing far it's it's crazy to say this, but I feel like Joe Biden is definitely doing more for us people of color than Barack <laughs> Obama did. Um, I would say it's not Joe Biden, it's more so Joe Biden's party. I well, don't think yeah, Joe Biden really ran on these ideas, but his right, party did. <laughs> but just like Donald Trump got to tout all of these different accolades, true. Joe Biden's the one that's presiding. Fair. And that's, that's and that's true. the unfortunate part sometimes. You get the credit just because you're the you're the man, you know, the sitting you're in the man in the office. Chair. Yeah. Um but I will say <laughs> I think you know, looking at what they're trying to do to help with poverty, um it ain't just health care, which is all I can remember from President Obama. I'm not dogging him. I'm just saying that it is good that they are trying to um, to do this. But the other part is, you know, making sure that when these payments end, people can take care of themselves. But to give you a feel-good story before we get out of here and get into our quick hits, this is from Texarkana, Arkansas. Nicholas Watson was diagnosed with autism, ADHD, but he recently graduated high school with a record-breaking GPA as a 4.8. Like I say, he graduated. It's the highest ever in the school's history. What's more, he was accepted to 45 different colleges, awarded more than $1.5 million in scholarship offers. He's going to be attending Harding University on a basketball scholarship where we'll coach youth basketball. He's also going to be starting his studies with 64 college credits, majoring in electrical engineering. Man, that's a lot of uh, college credit to come in uh, 64. I mean, that's like Oof. two years, I feel like, almost. But uh, that's that's awesome. Um, you know, a lot of people didn't think he would ever be able to read or do math, but I'm glad he is able to do that. So what we're going to do, listeners, we're going to wrap up the second segment here. Make sure you stick with us. we got our quick hits. We'll be right back. Would you like to contribute to our scholarship fund? Would you like to help us partner with nonprofits? Would you like to submit a topic request or maybe even appear on our show? If so, go to patron.podbean.com forward slash black agenda pod. 
Thank you for your donation and belief in our mission. Let's get back to the show. All right, welcome back, listeners. So let's get into our quick hits here. So the first one here is going to be about a cat named Panther. First off, excellent name. I do love that name. <laughs> but uh, for, for two days, for at least two days and maybe more, residents of a suburban Denver neighborhood worried about the fate of the black cat called Panther, who was perched atop a 36-foot utility pole. So Panther stayed up there despite efforts by his co-owner, Alexis uh, Soberanis, and others to coax him down. And this is in Aurora, uh, Aurora, uh, Colorado. Excuse me. The cat went missing earlier this week and was first spotted atop the pole on Wednesday. And so standard practice, according to another utility, is to give cats time to make their way back down on their own. However, Panther had different ideas. He stayed up there. He was not coming down. I think they left food at the base of the pole and he still never came down. And however, finally, news of his plight reached Aurora Council member Curtis Gardner and city officials dispatched a ladder truck on Friday afternoon. And after getting the truck into place, firefighters were actually able to rescue the cat from the 36 foot pole. And he seemed rather eager to get into his pet carrier and Kimberly uh, Medina, who is another Panther co-owner, said she said he had always been allowed outside, but she says no more. She said never. He's not going outside anymore. So privileges revoked. But glad it was a happy ending. Panther is back with his family on the ground now. Doesn't look like he'll be going outside anytime soon, though. Yeah, I would as a former pet owner, I would definitely. Um, revoke those privileges. I can understand where it comes <laughs> from because, uh, yeah, that's too much to worry about with your cat being on a 36 foot utility pole. It's, it's crazy. I'm just like, how did he get there? <laughs> yeah, no, I'm just like, I mean, they do climb well, but geez, it's like, come on. Um, another story here uh, some more international news uh, out of Denmark. Customers and employees at an IKEA store in Denmark spent the night on the furniture, distor- furniture store's display beds after they became stranded by a snowstorm. Peter Elmos, manager at the Ikea store in Aalborg in the North Julant region, said 31 people slept at the store Wednesday night when a snowstorm blocked the nearby roads and brought public transit to a standstill. Elmos said the impromptu sleepover included watching Christmas specials and soccer games on TV. The kitchen staff made sure there was hot chocolate, pastries, soft drink, coffee, and beer for the occasion as well. The customers and employees had their pick of comfortable places because, as you know, Ikea's got the furniture exhibitions and the showroom. So, you know, Devin, I think if you do get stranded somewhere and you got to, you know, spend the night there, an Ikea is a pretty, pretty nice choice. No, that's number one one or two. I mean, if you're going to get stuck anywhere, I was thinking Walmart, but I was like, Walmart's probably not really that comfortable, but Ikea is definitely a place to be. I could think of maybe like Nebraska Furniture Mart or like a Rooms to Go or something, but those aren't that big. But IKEA is like the perfect place. They got a, re- you know, they have like a little cafeteria, so you got a place to sit. Ah, oh, it's perfect. So yes, yeah, if you ever mini rooms and stuff, it's like you got a yeah, hotel. <laughs> you do. It's perfect. It's if you're ever going to get stuck somewhere, get stuck in an IKEA. <laughs> That's a cool story. But <clears throat> we'll move on to. A camel beauty contest. So I did not know this was a thing before reading this story. So apparently Saudi Arabian authorities have conducted their biggest ever crackdown on camel beauty contests that re- uh, contestants rather that have received Botox injections and other artificial touch-ups. And this is according to the Saudi press agency, which reported on Wednesday with over 40 camels that were disqualified from the annual pageant. Uh, Saudi Arabia's popular King Abdulaziz Camel Festival, which kicked off earlier this month, invites the breeders of the most beautiful camels to compete for a $66 million prize. And so Botox injections, facelifts, and other cosmetic alterations to make the camels look more attractive are actually strictly prohibited. So jurors decided the winner, based on the shape of the camel's heads, necks, humps, dress, and postures, And then this year, authorities during their crackdown discovered dozens of breeders had stretched out the lips and noses of the camels. They had used hormones to boost the beast's muscles 
They had injected the camel's heads and lips with Botox to make them bigger. They had actually inflated body parts with rubber bands and used fillers to relax their faces. And so camel breeding is apparently a multi-million dollar industry and similar events take place across the region. So there you go. (laughs) Apparently, (laughs) you know, Botox can be used on camels. Did not, would have never guessed that. Um, and apparently you can win somewhere over $60 million if you breed camels. Yeah. I can't say that I knew that, you know, camel beauty contests were a thing, but I'm, it's, I know camels are big over there. People like their camels. Um, as, it, as you were reading, as I was thinking, I'm sure there's a lot of like animal, uh, rights people who are just, yeah, like, where's Peter? Yeah, no, <laughs> y'all are abusing them, like inflating their heads and body parts and rubber bands. And like, come on, this is, this is crazy stuff. But, you know, I guess, you know, anything to make a quick buck, um, to kind of keep us in that part of the world, but to go to India, <clears throat> a goat entered a government office in India and was caught on video walking off with a file full of papers from inside the building. The video shows an employee chasing after a goat while it holds a file of papers in its mouth. Witnesses said the goat had entered the building while employees were working outside and walked off with papers from an office where documents related to village development projects are stored. The file carried away by the goat only contained scrap papers and no official documents. The employees recovered most of the papers from the animal, but some of them had been chewed up. Employees have now been instructed to remain inside the office while working. Um, just like um, Panther getting his privileges revoked, I guess these workers in India got theirs revoked as well. But, hey, if you let goats into the office, I revoke your privilege too. <laughs> so, yeah, I guess when you have that list of people not allowed in the office, you just have a picture of a goat and just say, no, no goats allowed in the building. <laughs> That's pretty funny. Uh, but our next story here, so we talked about cats in the beginning, but this story is not quite as... I don't know, not as, as funny as the other one, but it is still pretty uh, re- pretty ridiculous, I would say. So an accidental uh, shooting in New Hampshire led police to a house that was overrun with more than 70 cats and was actually declared uninhabitable because it was covered with feline feces and urine. So police in Kensington, New Hampshire, got a call from a hospital on Wednesday that a man was <laughs> that a man was admitted to the emergency room with a gunshot wound to the abdomen. And so police went to the hospital, spoke to the man and said he was cleaning. He said he said he was cleaning a rifle and he put it on a workbench when it fell to the floor and discharged around, injuring him. And police concluded, yes, that it was an accidental shooting. However, police also went to his home where they initially found at least 30 cats. And they said, quote, there was an overwhelming odor coming from inside the residence it was discovered inside that it was completely covered in feline feces and urine. And this is according to the uh, police chief in Kensington, the New Hampshire Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals, which removed 67, 67 black and white cats on Wednesday. And they actually found five more on Friday. They said that the ammonia, <laughs> the ammonia levels tested in house were much higher than what is considered safe. So they, Condemned the uh, condemned the house and declared it uninhabitable. So, pretty disgusting story there, Adrian. We've had a, a couple of these stories during this season about people hoarding animals. I don't know. This one kind of takes the cake. Sixty-seven, you know, over seventy cats in one house. I just can't imagine the smell, the way it looks. Uh, it's just I don't know how he was living in there with that. You know, the levels of ammonia. I thought that could kill you at some point. You would think. Uh, <laughs> I've been around cats before. My, I had a roommate who had two cats. And, I mean, just two cats aren't too bad because, you know, they can make sure they use the litter box and all that kind of stuff. But yeah. when you got more than 70, I mean, that's – you got a problem. There's no way you can have enough litter boxes in your place. And even if you did, I mean, it would still stink. Still wouldn't. Yeah. That, much litter, <laughs> that much litter. I mean, come on. And I don't know what it is um, – because my last quick hit story is out of New Hampshire as well. So maybe New Hampshire people are, are just got, I don't know, something in the water. Uh, but this is about a New Hampshire woman allegedly uh, kept her mother's corpse hidden in her home for nearly oh, six wow. months as Social Security checks continued to be deposited into the dead woman's bank account. 
Kimberly K. Heller, 54, was arrested and charged with abuse of a corpse. This is according to the Bedford Police Department. Police first responded to Keller's or Heller's home on the 24th after or October 24th after her family requested a welfare check for her mother, whom they had not seen for several months, according to the release. However, no one was at the home at the time. When officers returned the next day, police said Heller refused to let them inside. Police returned with a search warrant and discovered her mother's dead body. An autopsy later determined that Heller's mom died of natural causes just days before Memorial Day in May. And this is according to the police. You know, that's a crazy story. I mean, it's like, you know, I guess times are tough. I mean, Kimberly must not have been getting child tax credit payments or nothing like that. Um, to where she just felt like she had to keep her dead mom just so she can keep pocketing that social security money. That's that's something what else. What a terrible story. I mean, just that awful, like, I mean, great. It's interesting, but it's just like when you say she died just before Memorial Day in May, and we're talking in December, like, I just, again, like the cat story, like, could you, the, the smell, the decomposing, like, ah, it's just... Ah, it's just awful story, and and then on top of that, like you say, security checks weren't that big. Yeah, like come on, like come on, guys, like you, it wasn't that much for you not to work and pay. Like, wasn't worth keeping a dead body that was decomposing next to you for six months. Like, (laughs) maybe there was something else going on with her, some connection to her. You know, people do take death differently, and you know, maybe she just didn't want to let mom go. But uh, that's that's a brutal you know, brutal story and man, and she's going to have social security administration after her to get those payments. (laughs) Got to deal with that too. But uh, we'll go ahead and wrap up our quick hits. And so that's our last edition of that for 2021. We hope you enjoyed it. We're going to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to wrap this show up and wrap up this season as far as our weekly roundup goes. So stick with us and we'll be right back. You have been listening to the Black Agenda podcast hosted by Adrian Guest and Devin Dito. If you enjoy listening to the show, let the host know by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or by visiting patron.podbean.com forward slash Black Agenda pod and give a few dollars. After all, the Black Agenda podcast is supported by listeners like you. Let's get back to the show. All right, listeners, so let's get back into it. So like I said before the break, this is going to be our last weekly roundup of 2021. We've had 25 of these this season, and we have enjoyed every single one of them, and we hope you have as well. But we do have one last episode of the season, and that's going to be coming to you on Tuesday, December 14th. That will be a conversation surrounding big government spending and whether we can actually afford it. So the uh, episode is aptly titled, Can We Pay for This? Because that's the, name of the, that's the name of the game right now, as Congress is currently discussing a $2 trillion Build Back Better plan. The thing we're all wondering is whether we can afford it. And so our episode is going to be featuring Ms. Amy Hanauer. She is the Executive Director of the Institute on Taxation and Economic Policy. So Amy was awesome. We enjoyed talking with her. Not just about big government spending, but also some of the things surrounding taxes. And so it's a really great conversation about how we should view government spending and what it all really means, you know, as far as the Build Back Better plan and and going forward when we talk about government spending. So make sure you tune in Tuesday, December 14th. That's our last episode of the season talking about can we pay for all this government spending featuring Miss Amy Hanauer. Uh, from the Institute on Taxation and Economic Policy. Now, after that, on Tuesday, December 14th, that's our last episode. So the next time you hear from me and Adrian after Tuesday will be in 2022. We'll be back with you for season four of the Black Agenda podcast. So no weekly roundup next Saturday. This is going to do it for us in 2021. And so Adrian's going to let you know, before we get out of here, you can also help us out before we get into the new year. It is the season of giving, and Angel's going to let you know how you can give to us. Absolutely. And one way you might could help us out, maybe some people can share our Can We Pay For This episode with Joe Manchin and Christian Cinema. <laughs> um, they can understand some of the specifics of how we can actually pay for this. But uh, on to donations and talk about how we can, or rather how you can help us pay for stuff. 
you know, obviously Devin always says it, you know, which we hadn't been talking about as much here recently, but, you know, the little moving pieces that make us operate, whether it be Zooms, Incaster, Alitu, all of that. But even beyond how we operate today, we really want to grow this to something large, you know, down the road. And we can't do that without listeners, followers, but we can't do it without money, especially. In order to create a movement, create an organization, Unfortunately, in America, we live in a capitalist society, as I always say, and we got to have that money. So go to our website, blackagendapod.com. If you listen to us in the Podbean app, there's actually a donation tab right there that you can click on. When you get in there, you'll see a lot of different incentives to give, like being on our show, suggesting topics to us, different things of that nature. So make sure you go to our website. Like I said, blackagendapod.com. Click the donate tab and start giving. And as we always like to mention our charity of the month, unfortunately, since we're going to be wrapping up, we don't get to promote Unicorn Riot you know, throughout the whole month. But uh, it is a really cool organization, especially if you listen to our misinformation episode. Um, they are a 501c3 nonprofit media organization of journalists. They engage and amplify the stories of social and environmental struggles from the ground up. They seek to enrich the public by transforming the narrative with their accessible, non-commercial, independent content. Started in 2015, their commercial-free platform operates on a non-hierarchical, independent of corporate and government control. They're in a lot of different cities across the United States. And like I said, go to their website. It's just unicornriot.com, I believe, or maybe .org since they're a nonprofit, uh, and give them a look. Could be your next uh, media uh, outlet for you, other than the Black Agenda. <laughs> That's right. You can never have too many... Well, maybe you can't have too many media sources. I was going to say you can't have too many, but you actually, maybe you can. <laughs> Just yeah, make, sure. You gotta make sure you listen to us because we're a good source. And then you can check out Unicorn Riot too. Maybe you avoid CNN right now. Exactly. There you go. That's how you do it. But no, for me and Adrian, we have enjoyed this season, uh, season three here of the Black Agenda as far as our weekly roundup. We hope you have enjoyed it. It has evolved just like we have as far as the show. It started off differently. We shortened it up. We try to shorten our stories and make it more interesting. And we hope you have enjoyed it. So we would appreciate any feedback that you have for us. You can email us. We do have a podcast email. It is info at blackagendapod.com. And again, that's info at blackagendapod.com. Take a few minutes. If you've been listening to us, you know, a couple months, a year, tell us what you think of the show. We always want feedback and Usually we get it from our guests, but we don't often hear from our listeners. So email us at info. It's info at blackagendapod.com. Give us your feedback, not only about the weekly roundup, but also about the show as a whole. As we get into a new season, we want to know what you think and what we can do to make this even better. So again, you can find us on social media. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at blackagendapod is our handle. So make sure you follow us there to keep up with us during the break. We will still be posting, still be active, may even pop up if there's some big news going on and we may be still giving our opinion. So follow us there, follow us on YouTube or subscribe to us on YouTube. Just search the Black Agenda podcast. And so uh, any last thoughts, Adrian, it's our last weekly roundup. I know we need to get out of here, but any last thoughts before we go? Yeah, I mean, it's been fun. It's been great. Uh, as Devin had said, you know, this season has been very exciting. And I'll, we'll do a, a, another little wrap-up or whatever at our episode. But these weekly roundups have been very exciting, listeners, um, because we had just started making sure that they're on our um, podcast uh, platform. And you all are making them very successful. I mean, a lot of the weekly roundups have high numbers, just like our regular episodes. So we really appreciate you for listening to us give news because I say, Devin and I, we're not like your Don Lemons and Chris Cuomo's. We don't have the followership or whatever, but we do have good allyship through you all. So we really, really appreciate that. Um, and that's the only thing I would say to you is just, just thankful for what y'all are doing for us. Because we're going to keep this thing going um, all the way into the White House. So we'll, you know, we'll always <laughs> be you know, making sure that you stay in the loop of what's happening. So appreciate it. That's right. I, I wish we had our allyship counter on the show going. I, I know. It would ding every time we use it. But <laughs> I, tried, I tried to get it in there as many times as I could. And then right at the end, I was like, man, who, is it, there you hey, go. it fits. You didn't force it. <laughs> so, But listeners, we will let you go again. If you don't hear us, if you don't listen to our last episode, you need to. 
But if you if this is the last time we're going to talk to you for 2021, we thank you. We hope you have a you know you have a happy holidays, you, safe travels, going to see your family and friends. Have a safe New Year's, and we will see you in 2022. So thank you for listening, and we'll catch you next time. <laughs>